Good morning. So, the character of Christ, pretty big subject matter. Um, it's not a subject that we're going to be able to plumb the depths or reach the heights in the half hour we have together. Um, and it's not an altogether new subject. Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus is the sum of the gospel. He must be our constant theme. So in every way, the character of Christ is ever on our minds and on our hearts and ever on our thoughts until our last day, until we enter into Christ's presence. So this is certainly um, uh, certainly a theme that and, and, and uh, a subject that is not just now being presented, but it is something that we always hold. So um, with that, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. We ask you to edify us, to encourage us, to redeem this time with one another as we study, as we meditate, as we review, learn, and digest the character of your Son, our Lord and Savior, the Redeemer. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, quick review. It's been a few weeks since we've been on in this book. I think the last subject was the claims of Christ. And that was several weeks ago. I know last week we had reform Conference on Reformed Theology. So that chapter segues right into this one. And um, if you recall in that chapter, to bring you up to speed, there were the statements of Christ, the great I am, before Abraham was I am. And so he's speaking with an authority and with a power and with um, claims that had never been done before. And so now we're turning from what he claimed about himself, the truths that he claimed about himself and who he was and who he was from and what he was, to now his actions, his words, his deeds, his character. And so I don't want to get started without referencing some Greek. Does anybody know what the Greek word for character is? It's character. It's defined. So bear with me here. As... The mark means distinctive quality. So there's a distinction that we're going to review this morning via Stott's chapter, and then we'll get into a little further beyond that. Uh, also, character can be the modern definition updated to be uh, mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. So I should probably use my PowerPoint. These are the claims that we revert, re- reviewed with Jason Quirrell when he spoke. There's our definition of character. All right, so Stott begins in his chapter, page 45, if you got the book. If you don't, no problem. And he really points out and begins with the uniqueness of Jesus. And he's looking at this almost from an apologetic standpoint. So we're... we're, we're We're going to review this chapter with Stott and walk with him through, it's not a biblical worldview, this is almost a persuasive chapter to those who've never accepted Christ or known Christ, and then as we transition through this uh, presentation, we'll actually put a biblical worldview on this and, and, and flesh out a little bit more. But his, his claim that Christ is contrasted to all the other greats, Napoleon the Great, Charlemagne the Great, um, Alexander the Great. He's in his own category. And so we see that. And um, he, he, he segues from the uniqueness of Christ and that he's unlike any other man that ever was or ever will be into 
what, what about his uniqueness? What made him unique? What set him apart? And it's his sinlessness that, uh, Stott gets to. And so, and he'll, he'll get into this in later chapters a little bit on the fall of man, on the nature of sin, on the necessity of the death of Christ. But as we see from Genesis 3, and Stott references that we have, he's got a small little paragraph. He says it's a congenital disease that is endemic through the human race, it being sin. And so we've gone from uh, from what Augustus of Hippo would say, the passe peccare, able to sin, or passe non peccare, able not to sin, to a state of fallen nature to non passe non peccare, which is fancy language, means we are not able not to sin. And man has done that to himself. We have fallen and we need a savior and we cannot rescue ourselves, which we'll get into. So um, Stott follows up on page 47 that, the separateness from sinners, this uniqueness of Christ is a presupposition of redemption. I view that as a hidden, maybe we'll develop it later, but that looks to me like the penal substitutionary atonement. That's, that's what that doctrine is, that he's not exactly saying, but that's what he's saying, and that the necessity of an atoning sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of a holy God. That's what Jesus is, that's what he was. So, we know that when we review this chapter, Stott's main claim of his uniqueness, of Christ's sinlessness, is based on, and he wants to review the evidence for this. And so he starts with four evidences, what Christ himself thought or taught. And so what the apostles recorded, his interaction with them, what Christ's enemy said, and then finally, what we can see for ourselves, and he, he specifically references the four Gospels. So what Christ thought, just a, a few quick verses, John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John eight twenty three. But he continued, talking to the Pharisees, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Stott references that. He was supernatural. Left it at that. John eight fifty eight. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So, last chapter of the claims of Christ flow into this chapter in terms of what he thought, what he taught. So, interesting. What the apostles thought when, and I've never thought about it like this. It's pretty creative. That here we have men, fishermen, unlearned, not really any status or riches or wealth or esteem in the world that they had. But they spent three years with Christ on boats, hungry in the wilderness, walking, feeding, um, teaching, learning. They shared a bank account, which is kind of funny. Um, And there's never any mention of, of our Lord losing his temper or becoming vexed or in any way sinning uh, through that account. And so he, he references really what they didn't say as one of the evidences of his apostles. The second portion of that is what they said about him. Really, um, well, that's the third, excuse me. The second is that they, these apostles were Jews, so they had knowledge of, of the Old Testament. They had knowledge that no, that no man was without sin. As Psalm 14 says, they've all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. So for a rabbi in this time to claim that to them, their teacher, and ultimately their savior eventually, is something that would 
increase and have a, a heightened scrutiny, none the, to say the least, of these guys. So it, it, and it, and it reminds me of when he calmed the storm and, and these apostles look at each other and says, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey? And so finally it's their testimony that is, um, sets Christ's sinlessness and uniqueness apart. And it's worth noting that when, <laughs> when you read this and you review the words of all the apostles, whether it was Peter or John or Paul or the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, he, the sinlessness of Christ is never really the topic necessarily. It's almost a tangential, oh, as a matter of fact, just on the side, uh, collateral statement. They weren't out to prove necessarily the sinlessness of Christ. They're just presenting the gospel and the testimony as they see it and the man whom they were with for those three years. So when you look at 1 Peter 1, 17, 19, what did, what did Peter say? He was like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. John, every, in, in 1 John 3, 4 through 5, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Hebrews 7, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And finally, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says it in several other places, but God made him who had no sin, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we've got what God said, his thoughts, his statements, what his apostles said from their walk in time with him. And here comes the fun part, what his enemies said about him. And Stott points out that it's interesting when an argument cannot be won by reasoning, you throw mud. We see that all the time. And the mud that they threw... No surprise here. Mark 2 is a pretty good uh, outline. I mean, that, just that chapter says and shows and displays a lot of the name-calling. Blasphemy, because he forgave. He didn't, they didn't think he had power to forgive. Evil associations, he dined with tax collectors and people of low nature. And um, Frivolous religion, he didn't fast like the Pharisees, they said. He was a glutton and a drunkard. And then they said he was a Sabbath breaker, actually healed people on the Sabbath. But when you look and see the actual testimony of what we would consider his enemies or those that are alienated him, Judas, the thief on the cross, and the centurion, what did Judas say in Matthew 27? I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Or the thief on the cross, and we indeed justly, he's talking to the other thief, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. That's Luke 23, Luke 41, Luke 23, 47. And this is the centurion. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. So Stock concludes his final evidence of Christ's sinlessness, what is shown in the four gospels. And he has some pretty good language. He mentions that Christ exhibited the greatest self-esteem and the greatest self-sacrifice. Lord of all, but he became their servants. He said that one day he would come to judge the world, but he washed their feet. And so we know in the Gospels uh, what Christ uh, says about himself, that he is l- gentle and lowly in heart, or humble. In the King James Version, I'm, I'm meek and lowly in heart. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will 
of him who sent me. So Stott concludes this chapter with saying, above all, the, the character of Christ is unselfish, unselfishness or selfless. He says that he's humble. He points out the paradox of his divine nature that yet never puts on airs. It's never pompous, even though all things are made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So Stott, in his last paragraph, says, Such a man is altogether beyond our reach, succeeded where we always fail, had complete mastery of himself, never retaliated, never grew resentful or irritable. And says, The essence of love is self-sacrifice. Jesus was sinless because he was selfless. Such selflessness is love, and God is love. All right. So that's Stott's chapter. Christ was unique. He was sinless. Why was he sinless? We're going to look at this and kind of examine the gospel. We're going to examine what the people around him said and almost use a historical narrative. We're not going to look at this with a biblical view. We're not even going to deal with the inerrancy of Scripture yet, as Jason Corwell pointed out last time. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time on the uniqueness of Christ and namely how he was unique. This wasn't just some idea or some person that we can just look and see what his friends said about him. Even John Stott, we had an introduction. We, we, we knew where he was born, what he did, where he lived. And so Christ, we, we need to know his origin, his introduction, who he is, who the man is, who the God man is. And so there's never been a precedent before this, before, before uh, Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. So we've had Abraham and God's covenant. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Israel. But finally, those were all just sinful men. God comes to dwell as the sinless man. So first it was necessary that the mediator should be a divine person. Westminster Confession, larger catechism, question 38, why? It was requisite that the mediator should be a divine person, should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, Give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. A.W. Pinks in the Christ the Mediator in reference in Scripture says, None but God can give eternal life, and therefore none but a divine person could be a real Savior of those who are dead in sins. Again, for man to glory in any one of his, of his Savior and give him the honor of the new creation to resign himself to his pleasure, a rid become his poverty, and to say to him, Thou art Lord of my soul, is an honor to which... No mere creature can have the least claim. In Jehovah shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. That's from Isaiah 45, that last sentence. So Stott goes on, and I don't know if it's three or four or five chapters, but he says that Christianity is a rescue religion. What's he mean by that? It's God-initiated. It's God-ordained. It's God-planned. It's not a plan B or plan C. It was before the foundation of the world. Worth pointing out. Every other religion on earth, every other ism, every other philosophy is man's attempt to reach God. It's man's attempt, failed attempt to reach God. Break it down. Muhammadism, uh, Confucianism, Buddhism, any of them, Islam, is man's attempt to reach God. Christianity's, Christ is unique. Christianity is unique because it's God's perfect attempt. Uh, dare I say, not attempt, but it's perfect um, reaching of us. And it's where... Christ condescended and gave up his heavenly throne. And so no other religion has um, an intervention where it is a God-initiated rescue religion. Reminds us of Jehovah Jireh, that, that term we hear in Isaiah 45, or excuse me, that is uh, Genesis 22, where 
7 through 8, where we remember Isaac, Abraham, he's going to sacrifice his only son, and he's going to believe the promises of God. And Isaac says, Father, we got the wood, we got the fire. Where's the, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham turns to him and says, God will provide. It's no accident that this happens centuries later that Christ comes and God provides Jehovah Jireh. Um, second, it's necessary that the mediator should be a human person. Reference in the larger catechism again. It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer, and make intercession for us in our nature. Having a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and of comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Pink goes on to say in this that the love, the law of God requires the love of our neighbor, but none is our neighbor, but who is of the same blood with us. Therefore, before our surety could satisfy the law for us, he must become man. So too, he needed to take on him our nature in order to our being united to him in one body, and he made members of his flesh and of his bones. And that's Ephesians 5.30. Third, it's necessary that the mediator, the uniqueness, why is Christ unique? He's a mediator. He's God. He's man. Well, here comes the cold water. It was necessary that the mediator should be God and man in one person. We refer to that as the hypostatic union. It's a mystery. Nothing that we can necessarily grasp or intended to fully grasp, but we press on. Westminster Confession says, It was requisite that the meter who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. Had he been, and this is from Pink, one more quote from Pink, can't help myself. Had he been God only, he could not have died. Had he had been man only, he could not have merited for us and bestowed the Holy Spirit upon all his people. Had he not been the God-man, our redemption would have been brought about by two persons. Therefore, did the eternal word become flesh? Reference to John 1.14. Forever be his name adored. So, go back here. Stott did reference a paradox. It's a fancy word. I don't want to define it, but I'll do my best saying it's a it's seemingly opposite ends of the spectrum that go together. So, and it's true, it's, it's probably a good word to use, that, the, that our Lord of all came to serve. He said one day he's going to judge, but in the meantime, washes the feet of his disciples. So, and finally, to close out the mediator, Pink has one more quote from his book. Now, inasmuch as the mediator is God and man in one person, it follows that various things may be truly stated concerning or applied to him, which are infinitely opposite to each other, paradox. Namely, that he has all power and wisdom as it concerns his deity, and yet that he is weak and finite as respects his humanity. In one nature, he is equal with the Father, and so receives nothing from him or is in, under any obligation to yield obedience. In his other nature, he is inferior to the Father, and so re receives all things from him. Here then is what makes it manifest that there is no contradiction between John 10.30 and 14.28 as the second person of the Trinity. He could say, I and my Father are one, as the God-man mediator. My Father is greater than I. Okay. So here we have, I think, a little 
further explanation of exactly how Christ was unique. Just wasn't just greater than others. He was unique because he was God and man, two persons in one. And so now I, I, I like to get into a little bit of the characteristics of Christ. I like to ask people, even myself, I always ponder, well, what's his greatest characteristic? And so you think of, I mean, you, it, it, the list never ends, but you think of Christ as faithful, as holy, as merciful, obedient, patient, sinless, humble, gentle, mediator, friend of sinners, conqueror, forgiving, compassionate, righteous. So I like to try to boil it down like a good lawyer and determine, well, what, what, what can I focus on in Christ that, that really helps me because we're all called um, Romans eight twenty nine to be conformed to the image of his son. That's our great aim. That's our great call. And so those are a lot of characteristics. But I think the compassion, another word for love, most people would, would, some people in this room would say that's his chief characteristic, and I don't think that anything wrong about that. In fact, John 15, 13 speaks that Jesus said, No greater love than this that a man should lay down his life for his friends. All right? Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on women and children. We think, this is an easy one, the shortest verse in the Bible. I can remember it because it's the shortest. Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five, And then even later, when dealing with Lazarus' death, later in that chapter, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tent, tomb. So in his last moments, suffering on the cross, having been beaten, bruised, and nailed to the cross, some of his last words were, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. In the moment of his greatest agony and suffering, what is it, if not the greatest display of his character of compassion, a dying declaration, if you will? So, Pink says, makes the case for his compassion, Christ's compassion. How glorious then is the Son of God and his susception, means taking upon him. Of the office of mediator, for if such be the perfection of the divine nature, and its distance is so absolutely infinite from the whole creation, if such be his self-sufficiency unto his own eternal blessedness, so that nothing can be taken from him, nothing added unto him, so that every regard to him and to any of his creatures is an act of self-condescension from the prerogative of his being in state. What heart can conceive, what tongue can express the glory of that condescension in the Son of God, whereby he took our nature upon him, took it to be his own, in order to discharge of the office of media on our behalf, nothing but love, love unfathomable to his father and to his people could have moved him thereunto. It's a pretty good characteristic. That's a pretty chief characteristic. There's another one, though. The humility of our Lord Jesus. Hard to grasp. Let me review Philippians 2, 7. That Christ emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. So the same person who gave his life for the sheep possessed the glory with the Father before the world was. When we consider Christ's chief characteristics, we also think about what he, again, what did he say about himself? Come unto me, I'll eat your bell and heavy laden, and I'll refresh you. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. I'm humble in heart. That's what he says about himself. I'm meek and lowly in heart. Andrew Murray Makes his case for humility. Says, 
It is of inconceivable importance that we should have right thoughts of what Christ is, what really constitutes him the Christ, and especially what may be counted his chief characteristic, the root and essence of all his character as our Redeemer. There can be but one answer. It is humility. Christ is a humility of God embodied in human nature. The eternal love humbling itself, clothes itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. John Chrysostom says, For just as pride is the root of all sin, and we know that, so humility is the root, mother, nurse, foundation, and bond of all virtue. Jonathan Edwards on humility. We must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterizes true Christianity. Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. All right, well, so we've got his compassion. We've got his love. Surely that's his chief characteristic. Humility, maybe we can argue that's his chief characteristic. So far, it's probably one of those two. Well, let's consider a third. The obedience of Jesus. Obedience unto death, even death on a cross, Paul tells us. John 8, 29, the one who sent me is with me. These are Christ's words. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Perfect obedience. Reference back to 1 Samuel 15. Samuel's speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit. As the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Calvin, in his institutes, now someone asked, how has Christ abolished sin, banished the separation between us and God, and acquired righteousness to render God favorable and kindly toward us? To this we can in general reply that he has achieved this for us by the whole course of his obedience. This is proved by Paul's testimony, Romans 5.19, as by one man's disobedience, Adam, federal parent, many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, we are made righteous. In another passage, to be sure, Calvin states, Paul extends the basis of the pardon that frees us from the course of the law to the whole life of Christ. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of woman, subject to the law, to redeem those, us. We were under the law. Thus, in his very baptism, also he asserted that he fulfilled a part of righteousness in obediently carrying out his father's commandment. I like this one. Y'all might, some might like humility. Pretty good. Compassion. But when study and review, The character of Christ isn't measuring one chief characteristic against another and examining and waiting. We turn to John 1, 14, 16. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. For from this fullness... There's the word again. We have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. 
What is grace? We think we so often limit Christ's grace in our own lives. We know we've got redemption. We know we're in sanctification. It hurts, stings, it's not comfortable. But, and I heard this, I think it was one of our, a program I did last year, but, but consider grace as if you've got a cup of water, or let's call it a cup of, cup of coffee, and you put it under the sink in the faucet. You turn the faucet on, and the water fills up the coffee, and it pours out. And it's cleaning up, and it's dark, and now it's lighter, and it's more and more. And the water just is flowing and completely clean. That's a good, that's a, that's a, that's a good example of, of Christ's superabounding grace through his fullness. So, not going to lose a chance to bring in more Greek. This one's not too hard either. The Greek word for fullness, I hope I'm pronouncing this right to the scholars out there, plerace. It means full, abounding in, complete, lacking nothing, and perfect. So, we've got some scripture. Always good to reference scripture with scripture. Ephesians 1, 22, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Colossians 2, 3, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Isaiah 11, 1-5, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, Christ the Mediator, paragraph 4 mentions... When Christ came down, it says specifically, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake this office. So, it is the fullness of our Lord that we must set our eyes on. And so, I'll show you something, it's nothing fancy. The flower to rose. I don't know which petal makes this flower stand out. Which which petal composes this flower? Is it this one or this one or this one? Each petal is fully yellow, but it's the comprehension. It's the it's it's the totality of the perfect obedience of Christ, of the perfect humility of Christ, of the perfect compassion and love for Christ. And yes, his perfect righteousness and his perfect faithfulness and his perfect merciful nature. But it's all of that. It's the fullness of the God-man. It's in his perfect, sinless, selfless, sacrificial life of the Lamb of God that is his glory. So it's the fullness of Christ that we must draw our eyes upon. It's the fullness of his mercy, of his grace, of his humility, emptying himself. What does Romans 8.29 tells us? The ultimate goal is to be conformed, I mentioned that earlier, to the image of his son. Paul, Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Who but Christ is true? Perfectly true. Who but Christ is honorable, perfectly honorable, and just, and pure, and lovely, and commendable. Who but Jesus alone is excellent. Who but Christ alone is worthy of praise. That's who he's telling us to think on.
In closing, Spurgeon said, Christ is the fullness of the gospel. So I'll share from a sermon of his. Christ is in us the hope of glory. Christ for us, our full redemption. Christ with us, our guide and our solace. And Christ above us pleading and preparing our place in heaven. Jesus Christ is our captain, our armor, our strength, and our victory. We inscribe his name upon our banner. For his hell's terror, heaven's delight, and earth's hope. Amen. Let's pray. Mm, Heavenly Father, thank you. Who can grasp such wonder? Miracle of miracles that you sent Jesus to us. Miracle of miracles that he is interceding for us now. Until we are in your presence. Lord, we thank you for everybody here. We thank you for the chance to learn and to study and to grow and to, and to, to meditate and to seek the character of Christ. It's as vast, vast as an ocean, Lord, but we know that you desire us to do this. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his redemptive work. Let us keep our mind on him. And yes, we need doctrine. And yes, we need wisdom and understanding. The Jews wanted miracles and the Greeks wanted knowledge. And you've given us both in the person, in our Savior, know our Lord, Jesus himself. So let us cling to him. Let us look to him for all hope, for all sanctification, for the existence of our lives, for the duration of our lives. Be with us now as we worship and for those that I have already worshipped. Bless this day in Christ's name. Amen.